Massachusetts is absolutely stunning where you live as it is here in Arizona. It's September the 25th, 2021, and it is absolutely paradise here. It's 81 degrees, sunny, beautiful, beautiful skies, beautiful everything here in the desert. And I'm just so happy uh, to be here. I hope that everything is great where you are too, as I say. We are going to finish today the chapter to employers. And when we are in the chapter to employers, we are studying a chapter of the book that many, many people poo-poo. They just, oh, two employers, two wives, the family afterwards, poo, poo, poo. There is a lot of wonderful information here. There is so much to learn, so much to gather from this chapter that it's hard to even put a finger on it. But what this chapter really is, is it's a continuation of step 12. See, step 12 is a three-part step. It says in the first part of step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And that tells me who should and can be sponsoring. Anyone who's had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps is an excellent potential sponsor. And we need to sponsor. We need to get involved. You know, I hear so often people telling me, I'm not going to sponsor. I'm scared. I'm this. They're really not saying they're scared most of the time, but that's what it really is. They're scared and there's nothing to be afraid of. If you just point your lantern in the direction of the big book and share with the person how you got through these various things, you can be a most effective sponsor. And if the person wants to recover, you can't say the wrong thing. If the person doesn't want to recover, you can't say the wrong thing where anybody is going to be thinking about you or judging you or discussing how good or bad you sponsored. We're really not paying that much attention to it. Eleanor Roosevelt said, when considering what others think of us, let's first consider how little they do. The second part of it is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. The second part of it is we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters, not our message, not some message, not the message of some other thing, but the message of the big book is the most important thing. And then it says, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now, what are some of our affairs? Well, after working with others, which is step 12, what else do we have? Two wives. So if we have a spouse or people very close to us, that's part of the that's part of the affairs. And then we have uh, the family afterwards. So we have the people that are very close to us too, but they're not quite the spouse. They're not quite the best friend. They're not quite the partner, but we affect them and they affect us as well. And then we have two employers. And what we have to know is the easier place to do this is in the meeting. Easiest place to do it is in the meetings. And then the second easier place to do it is in the workplace. And then the hardest place to do it is in the home. But in the workplace, emotions are going to come up about money and, and office politics and who got the promotion and who didn't get the promotion and who's going to get the corner office and who's not going to get the corner office and who's going to have to do this and who's not going to have to do that. So we have a lot of things going on in the workplace that can send us <clears throat> into step tens like nothing else can because it it rattles our cage on the basic instincts of life. And the basic instincts of life are the social instinct, the security instinct, money, and then the sex instinct. A lot of things going on in the workplace. And so this chapter to employers, although it's not as apropos in some areas as it was back in the 1930s, there's still an enormous amount of truth and in an and it has an enormous amount of very, very valuable knowledge when it comes to our lives. Very, very important. Okay, that said, let's go to page 148. 
and it says, we think this method of approach, and I'll give you a second to get there, 148, we think this method of approach. So before we get there, let's remember that when we talk about the chapter two employers, what I'm reminded of are two basic concepts, loss and denial, loss of money, loss of time, loss of dreams, loss of opportunities. And when I was a little boy, I was overwhelmed by this disease at an extremely early age. And my friends, it seemed to me, were living a very, very different life than I was living. They were living lives that included dreams and they were living lives that included love and intimacy and all these various things, family, which in my case was like an insane asylum in a lot of ways, but they seem to be free to dream and free to live and free to walk out into the world and look like other people and dress like other people and be like other people. And they had the right to dream and work toward goals. And I thought I did not because I was fat. Because from the time I was a little, little child, little child, people would say to me, Fat boys don't get good jobs. Fat boys don't get to go out with girls. Fat boys don't get to be whatever. You know, fat boys, you could fill it in yourself. And I found out that one couple of the things they were telling me were really, really true. What they said was fat boys don't get to go out with girls. I found that to be the case. I didn't go on my first date with a girl till I was 35 years of age. And I found out that when they said to me, oh, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. They were 100% correct. When I don't eat so much, I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel my own inadequacies better. I feel jealousy better. I feel anger better. And as those feelings would burst to the surface inside of me, like a Roman candle on the 4th of July, the only solution that I knew was to eat. The only thing I knew to do was to eat. I didn't connect the dots and say, I'm having these feelings. I'm having these difficulties. I'm going to go eat. I just thought I was hungry. I just thought I had a taste for ice cream. I just thought I had a taste for whatever it is. You fill in the blank, whatever it is you like from Chips Ahoy to God knows what. I never connected those things. And Shakespeare said the saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words, it might have been. And so I ended up in a job, I ended up with something that I really, I, I look at what I do for a living often and I say, gosh, I'm better than this. But you know what? I'm 67 years old. I'm not probably gonna go out and start a new career now. But what I say to myself always is, you know what? It could have been a lot worse. Yeah, it could have been better. But because of recovery, it could have been a lot worse. Am I glad I'm still working at 67 years old? No. Do I wish I was retired? Oh, you bet I do. But you know what? My bills are paid. I'm healthy. I just walked three miles six days a week over the last long period of time. My cardiologist gives me a very clean bill of health. My doctor's thrilled. My dentist is thrilled. You know, things could be a lot worse. And the reason that they're not worse is because of this magical, magical journey called recovery. And it's a magical, magical journey. And it's something to behold. If you've ever dreamed of loving yourself, not in a narcissistic, egotistical, insane way, but if you've ever dreamed of being on good terms with yourself, stick around. If you've ever dreamed about being a useful, productive member of society, 
As absurd as that idea may strike you today, stick around and do the work. If you've ever dreamed of being that person that you never thought you could be, stick around. You're going to be that person. And as it says on page 88, one of the most important sentences ever written in the English or any language, it says on page 88, when referring to this program of recovery in step 11, it says, it works. It really does. Doctors have been pronouncing me dead for a very long time. I remember distinctly being 17 years old. I broke my ankle in gym class at Mather High School in Chicago on the north side. I'm born and raised on the north side. And I remember that I went to Edgewater Hospital, which is condominiums now. And I went to Edgewater Hospital and Dr. Bernstein was putting a cast on my ankle and my mother was sitting there crying. And Dr. Bernstein looked over his glasses and he said to my mother, you know, Virginia, and he looked like he was really mad. He's over 300 pounds and he's 17 years old. He isn't going to live to see 30. And I blame you and Max, and I blame, my father's name was Max, and I blame him. You've got to get a handle on this kid's eating. And she cried all the way home. And what did we do on the way home? We went for ice cream on Devon Avenue. We went for ice cream and swore to God that tomorrow we were going to get back on our diets. Of course, tomorrow never, well, not never, but it, it never came for my mother, but it came for me. I'm not dieting, but you get the picture. I did get abstinent and I've been abstinent now for over 22 years. So we're talking about loss and we're talking about denial. Let's go to page 148. We think this method of approach will, I'm in the middle of the page, will accomplish several things. It will permit the rehabilitation of good men. At the same time, you will feel no reluctance to rid yourself of those who cannot or will not stop. In other words, when he says here, you will not have any reluctance this is good for your sponsoring. If a person that you're sponsoring, or if you are the person that cannot or will not stop, don't be surprised when your sponsor drops you. If they don't drop you, they're not doing you any favors because at some point we have to be awakened we have to be fired. We have to know that if we're still eating and we're not moving forward in the steps, that we are not going to recover. And sometimes we can say to ourselves through denial, then I'm somehow different. What jobs do the ego, does the ego have? The ego has three jobs, three jobs. Make me right. Make, make it okay that I feel good right now. Make me feel good right now. And the third job is make me different from everybody else. That's the job of the ego. Clancy Immeslin is one of my favorite speakers in AA. He's unfortunately, he's gone now. He died last summer. But Clancy Immisland used to say that alcoholics who go up to heaven and God after not recovering in AA, they yell at God and God yells back and says, I sent you a book, I sent you a program, I sent you a sponsor. And the alcoholic turns to God and says, wait a minute, you don't understand God. My case is different. No, it's not. Page 98 tells us priorities, job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not recover while we put other things in front of spiritual principles. And what are the spiritual principles? The spiritual principles are the steps. They're the steps. And so I have to prioritize this above all else. Does that mean 
that I don't have room in my life to experience joy, to enjoy a friend, to enjoy a walk, to enjoy a college football game. Oregon plays Arizona today. I'll be rooting tonight. I'll be rooting for Oregon. And I've got Donald Duck behind me. He's Donald Duck is the symbol of the Oregon Ducks. No, that doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is nothing comes before my program. Nothing. Okay, let's continue. Alcoholism may be causing your organization considerable damage in its waste of time, men, and reputation. Alcohol, food, is cost, what can cost anyone in, irreparable, considerable damage because it sucks everything out of you. If all the food did was make me fat, it wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world. Okay, so I'm fat, all right. Now, in my case, I took it to a ridiculous extreme. My friend Roy in California says, if you want a good example of somebody who was trying to break down death's door, when, when they talk about the gates of insanity or death, he says, call Harlan, I'll give you his number. There's a guy that was at the door of insanity or death and trying to kick it in. But this disease does more than make me fat. What it does is it sucks the life out of me. And we've talked about these things before, but bear with me because if there's anyone on this line that hasn't heard me say this, I'm going to say it again. The disease first does what any abuser will do. What does an abuser do in an abusive relationship? An abuser first isolates you from your support system. It isolates you from family. It isolates you from friends. It isolates you from people who will objectively say to you, listen, mister, listen, miss, your reality here is insane. You've got to get out of this situation. The abuser doesn't want you to hear those words, so they isolate you. And that's what food does. It amputates me from society. It makes me into a hermit. It takes me and isolated me from any known support that I might have gotten. What else does it do? Well, I don't have, I, I need 10 years to tell you, but let's just look at some of the more obvious things. It eradicates self-esteem. Because how can I look at myself and like myself when I know I've lied to myself on a thousand different occasions and said I wasn't going to eat so-and-so, but there it was in my mouth. It causes extreme self-loathing. It destroys dreams. It destroys not only the sufferer, but the people closest to the sufferer. And what it's talking about here in two employers is also a reinforcement of that. If you are a suffering compulsive overeater, an alcoholic, a drug addict, if you're a gambler, if you are a whatever it is, you are a love addict, a sex addict, a codependent, you affected more than just yourself. You affected the people around you and you you sucked life out of them too. Not you personally, but your disease. Your disease. And it broke you off from any faith. How could you have faith in a God that let you suffer like that? Getting in a car for the morbidly obese is Herculean, getting out of a car, getting off the toilet, getting off a out of a chair, getting off a sofa, getting out of bed, dressing. No clothes fit, no clothes make us look good. We're living in a world where appearance matters and we just can't seem to look good in our own eyes. We're catching a glimpse of ourselves is revolting. Be it in a mirror, be it in a storefront, be it wherever, catching a glimpse of ourselves is revolting.
no munificent person, no loving person would make us live this way. And yet there we were at the hands of a disease that we couldn't see and we couldn't touch, we didn't ask for. We couldn't cure it, we didn't cause it, and we cannot cure it. We can't cure it, we didn't cause it, and we can't control it is what I meant to say, sorry. We have a disease that only a spiritual awakening will remedy. And we're asked to turn toward God. We're asked to turn toward a higher power. And most of us come in with chips on our shoulder toward God and chips on our shoulder toward religion and chips on our shoulder toward these things because where was God when I was suffering? And so we have to completely redefine God. We have to completely rewrite the description in our head. And that can be so tough for so many of us. We have to be open to change. We have to be open to the new, the untested and the untried. And for so many of us, it's always been, my way doesn't work, but I'm not changing. And that's a form of crazy too. The jaywalker, man of 30, Jim and Fred in chapter three illustrate for us so beautifully that it cannot be my way if I'm going to recover. One of the things I learned early on is that if I'm going to recover, I cannot set the terms of that recovery. It's not going to be my way. If it's my way, it's going to fail. The car is going to go into a ditch. The Mars rover is going to go into the gully. Something is going to go wrong if I do things my way. And I've got a 67-year backlog of negative results and dreadful experiences and embarrassments and life-threatening obesity to teach me. And yet, in the face of all this, I am still going to want to do it my way. Because right or wrong, my ego says this time it's going to be different. And the truth is, no, it's not. No, it's not. So this chapter illustrates for us as we bring it to a close almost here, the loss and the devastation of this disease. Now, some people may say, I've never been obese. Some people may say, well, I've never had trouble getting in and out of a car. I've never had trouble getting in and out of an airplane seat. I've never had trouble with all these things that you talk about, but I suffer too. Some of us have normal bodies. Some of us are anorexic. Some of us are bulimic. It doesn't matter which side of the coin you come from, whether it's the anorexic side or the bulimic side or the morbidly obese side, we are all compulsive overeaters. And we find out very soon that compulsive eating is not the problem, but it's compulsive overeating the disease that's the problem. Now, they may sound very similar, but they're very, very different. Let's look at alcohol and alcoholism, because it's a little easier to picture in your mind. <clears throat> what you find out when you come in, if you're an alcoholic, is that alcohol was never your problem. Your problem is alcoholism. Alcoholism is the problem. Alcohol is solved by doing what you think. Plug the jug, put the cap on the bottle, stop drinking, and your problems should be over. Oh, were it so simple. Oh, were it so simple. But the problem is the alcoholism. The compulsive overeating isn't the problem. It's having a disease called compulsive. I am a compulsive overeater. 
Now, I know I'm going to get some of this in questions and answers, but I'm trying to separate the disease from the substance. Food is not the issue here. Yes, it has to be put down. Yes, in the first half of the first step, we identify the problems, we identify the allergic reactions, we will continue to revisit these as we age. But we find out soon enough that food was not the problem, that it was the solution to the problem. The problem were the character defects as they manifest into resentment and fear, and jealousy, and procrastination, and all these other various workaholism, whatever that may be. I hope I'm making myself clear. So let's continue because we need to look at loss and the devastation of the disease, not just to others or not just to ourselves, but to others around us as well. Very, very important. Let's continue. We think we are sensible when we urge that you stop this waste and give your worthwhile man a chance. Well, you may not have a worthwhile man to give a chance to, but you have a worthwhile life. So whether you are male, female, black, white, green, yellow, polka dot, Jew, Gentile, Protestant, Catholic, Mormon, or whatever you may be, Muslim, whatever it is you may be, this is it. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. This is life. Give God a chance. Give yourself a chance. Many, many times I've said in here that when I was young, my father knew a lot of people that came out of the concentration and DP camps. If you don't know what a DP camp is, I'll explain it. A DP camp is a displaced person's camp. And there were many marriages and children that were born in there. And, you know, it was very, very quick. You know, you came out, you lost your family. She came out, she lost her family. Uh, let's make a go of it and let's go. And there were a lot of people that my dad knew that came out of those DP camps and those concentration camps that were in Europe. And they spoke with thick accents and they had tattoos on their left arm on the outside of their left arm that the Nazis had put there to identify them. And they would say to me, not all of them, not all the time, but they would say to me, live until you die. Live until you die. So something has to change if we are going to recover. Something has to change. I get this question all the time. How do I put the food down? You put the food down by putting the food down. Haven't we given enough to this monster of a disease? Haven't we paid enough of a price so far? Do we really want to pay more? Do we really want to suffer more? Because as it says in this paragraph, the price that we've already paid is horrendous. It's horrendous. Why pay more? Let's continue. The other day, an approach was made to the vice president of a large industrial concern. He remarked, I'm mighty glad you fellows got over your drinking. But the policy of this company is not to interfere with the habits of our employees. If a man drinks so much that his job suffers, we fire him. I don't see how you can be of any help to us. For as you see, we don't have any alcoholic problem. The same company spends millions of, for research every year. Their cost of production is figured to a fine decimal point. They have recreational facilities. There's a company insurance. There's a real interest, both humanitarian and business, in the well-being of employees. But alcoholism, well, they just don't have it. And how many of us have lived in such denial that we look at an ever-growing waste, waistline or we look at an ever-shrinking waistline and we look at ourselves and we don't see. Remember in the chapter, The Family Afterwards, we read the words to, that the alcoholic is living in a world of distortion. 
We make mountains of molehills and molehills of mountains. We do not see reality. We do not see the world as it is. We see it as we want to see it. And sometimes it's not quite as bad as we think because we have a tendency often to catastrophize. And we catastrophize all the time and we do it so well and so much, often we don't even know we're doing it. Or we have a tendency to live in utter and complete denial. We just don't see what's going on right in front of our faces. Let's continue. I'm on page 149. Perhaps this is a typical attitude. We also have collectively seen a great deal of business life, at least from the alcoholic angle. He had to smile at this gentleman's sincere opinion. He might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism is costing his organization. If we could see how much our compulsive overeating is costing us, it would be shocking in most cases. A year. That company may harbor many actual or potential alcoholics. We believe that managers of large enterprises often have little idea how prevalent this problem is. Even if you feel your organization has no alcoholic problem, it may pay to take another look down the line. You may make some interesting discoveries. Of course, this chapter refers to alcoholic sick people, deranged men. What our friend, the vice president had in mind was the habitual or whoopee drinker. Someday we're gonna go to the OA birthday in LA and somebody's gonna throw a whoopee party as he describes in the other chapter. I don't think I've, I've been to many, many kinds of parties but I don't think I've ever been to a whoopee party and I'm not a whoopee drinker or a whoopee eater. So I don't know. As to them, his policy is undoubtedly sound but he did not distinguish between such people and the alcoholic. And in other parts of the book, it talks about four types of drinkers, but only one is the real alcoholic. The rest of them are not alcoholics. It is, it is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee will receive a disproportionate amount of time and attention. He should not be made a favorite. The right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. He will not impose. Far from it. He will work like the devil and thank you to his dying day. Today, I own a little company. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen. But why not? They have a new attitude and they have been saved from a living death. I have enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. And these alcoholic employees and the name of the company was Honor Dealers. And he was out to put DuPont out of business. They were selling automobile polish. And the employees were Jimmy Burwell and Bill Wilson. And Jimmy Burwell and Bill Wilson worked for Hank Parkhurst and they were the two employees. As a matter of fact, it was in the offices of Honor Dealers on Walnut Street in Newark, New Jersey, where most of the big book was typed by Ruth Hock. Most of the book was actually typed at these offices. And that is where we see this little microcosm that these guys, Bill Wilson and Jimmy Burwell, were producing as much as five salespeople. But of course, as we know, they were in recovery, but if they had been in the disease, they could not have produced very much at all. So we sum up the chapter once again by talking about what is so important for us to, to know, that the loss of this disease, the denial of this disease, and the cost is just out of this world, that we have minds that often shut off to the reality of the situation, that we have brains and egos that keep us from the truth so much of the time, that our egos will not allow us to see what it is that we need to see. You know, if you've ever seen a monkey in a zoo, Unless that monkey was born in the zoo, which some are, they're born in the zoo, that happens. 
But if they were taken from their native land, be it South America, be it Central America, be it Africa, wherever that monkey may have come from, how do they catch a monkey? I'll tell you how they do it. I'll tell you how they do it. What they do is they take jars of food with thin necks where the monkey can stuff his hand in. And once he grabs the food, he cannot pull his hand out. So they wait and the monkey puts his hand in the jar, grabs the food, and they just walk up to the monkey and throw a net over him and they've got him. If the monkey had only let go, he'd be a free monkey today. But it is that reluctance to let go of the food, that reluctance to let go of the old, the reluctance to let go of what does not work that keeps us in the dungeon of this disease, the cold, dark, ominous, miserable dungeon of this disease with vermin running all around the dungeon, with foreboding futures and horrible nightmarish pasts and painful, horrible present moments. We hang on and the disease comes and throws a net over us and the disease has us by its, by our necks. And this is how simple it can be for the disease to catch up to us. We have loss, we have cost, we have denial. We need to be sponsored. We need to be sponsoring when we get to that point. We need to be working the program. We have to know that when we contact other people, I know some of us are so reluctant to, to make those calls. You know, I don't want to do the 10th step because then I have to call or I want to write it out and send it out. No, that's not a 10th step. That's not a 10th step. It says we discuss this with someone immediately, not we discuss it with them tomorrow morning. It doesn't say we discuss it with them at night or in the morning. We discuss it with someone immediately. And we're so afraid of those phone calls. We're so afraid of that contact. What are we afraid of? In most cases, what we're afraid of is we're afraid of being told and shown that what we're doing is just not going to work because my ego wants me to be right. And my ego tells me that somehow I'm different. You know, I talk to people, and I'm not alone in this world, but I talk to people all the time from various walks of life. Some of them are female, some of them are male, some of them are whatever. Some are wealthy, some are not so wealthy, some are downright destitute. But it doesn't matter. It really, truly does not matter. Because the disease is the disease. And it's like the snow in Chicago. It falls on everyone. And this disease does not care who it afflicts. It doesn't care how much it's going to cost you. It doesn't care that you have children or parents or loved ones that count on you. It doesn't care. It'll take you out. It wants you dead, but it will settle for you being miserable, absolutely miserable. Okay. This is a very important chapter. I hope that I've succeeded here today and in the Saturdays where we've gone through this chapter to bring to light so much of what is in the chapter that is as appropriate to any compulsive overeater as anything can be that this is not a chapter to be poo-pooed. It's not a chapter to be skipped over or avoided. There is valuable and useful information in this chapter. Okay. We're not gonna get too far into a vision for you because 
I know me and I know that next week I'm going to want to sort of get a good start on it. But I also um, I want to explain some things. Let's see what we can cover in the time we have left. Every time I look at the clock, which is in the upper right hand corner of my computer here, I always think it's 15 to 20 minutes earlier than it is. So it's quite, we talk about denial or we talk about catching a glimpse of yourself in a mirror or on a, in a store window. Every time I look at the time, normally I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say and I'm thinking about uh, whatever, and, you know, are the bears going to win tomorrow? Are the ducks going to win tonight? And whatever, I, you know, that's how my mind goes, you know? And when I look up and I see the time, I'm always like, there's a visceral shock that goes through me because I can't believe it's, it's as late as it is. But anyway, be that as it may, I'm sorry. Originally, the doctor's opinion was chapter one. Now, you know how you hear this all the time? Oh, the first 164 pages have never been changed and they never should be changed. They have been changed. They have been changed. If you're not aware of the changes, I'm here to inform you. Number one, the doctor's opinion in the first edition, first printing of this book was chapter one. And Bill's story was chapter two and so on. And originally there was 12 chapters. Isn't that funny? Is it odd or is it God that there were 12 chapters to the book which contains the 12 steps. And the doctor's opinion was moved in the second printing of the first edition because it was determined that the book should be for alcoholics by alcoholics. And Dr. Silkworth, although he was a great man, and he remains to our, he remains to this day our great medical benefactor. And if it wasn't for Dr. Silkworth, Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, there wouldn't be a program because it was Silkworth that laid out for Bill what the problem was or is. The problem of the physical allergy and the problem of the effect that the brain is seeking for alco with alcohol. And why does the brain set out to make itself feel better? Because fear and resentment and jealousy and happiness and all these regret, remorse, self-pity, all these various emotions springing from my defects, not, you know, they're just emotions, make me feel terrible. And it's very, very difficult for my brain to handle that kind of thing. And so my brain will turn to what it knows will make me feel better immediately. And what will make me feel better immediately is the calming, soothing effect of food. And Dr. Silkworth talks about this. But this chapter, chapter 11 of Vision for You, which was chapter 12, there is a very specific reason that this chapter was written. And we're going to get into a lot of history. We're going to get into a lot of things in this chapter that I'm hoping against hope will give you a deeper and more appreciative understanding and a deeper passion for this book than maybe you've had in the past. Because this chapter is ripe with it. But why is it called a vision for you? What is the purpose of this chapter? Well, when I came in here, eating was my recreation. Eating was my best friend. Eating was my lover. Eating was my date. Food was everything. It was all I thought about most days. I thought about what I was going to eat or I obsessed about what I wasn't going to eat. And I wished I was smaller while I was looking to get bigger. I wished to God that I could be thinner while there was chocolate turtles in my mouth. And that just doesn't make any sense. What will my life look like without this food? How will I cope 
with the everyday tedium boredom of life. How will I work? How will I play? What will I do? How will I function? What am I going to do when all the waitresses at the restaurants in Chicago don't see me anymore? Who's going to remember my birthday? What am I going to do when I don't know on a first name basis the waitresses or the waiters at a particular place? <laughs> the very first date I ever went on with my wife, she wasn't my wife then. The very first date that I ever went on, we ate at a restaurant in Chicago where I was so familiar with everything that I knew every waitress's car and I could pull into the parking lot and I could tell you who was absent because I knew who was supposed to work and who took their place. Often the only birthday cards I would get were from them. And I would walk into this restaurant and they would bring me my food. I never had a menu. I never, I used to just get the same thing every single day. I would eat in the same booth and sit at the same place. And I would eat the same thing day after day after day after day after day. And at some level, it was comforting to me to know that that was my life. I don't do real well with the untested, the untried, the, un, the undone. You know, the path less, the, the, the path or the, um, yeah, the path less traveled. No, the, the road less traveled, the road less traveled. I always went to the one that I had traveled on before, even though it was, it was full of danger and pain. I was very uneasy with new and untested. That made me freak out. I was so scared. Still does. That's why there's step 10. And if there wasn't step 10, I would have jumped out the window a very, very long time ago. Food was everything to me. There are certain street corners in Chicago to this day where when I pull up to that street corner, I'm looking around for the drive through window to get my fill, even though I don't do that anymore. There are certain songs on the radio that when I hear them, it will take my mind back to the summer of 73 or the summer of 82 or the summer of 91 and what I was eating and what I was obsessing on at that time. I've told this story this morning. We were I was talking to someone this morning, a dear friend. And I related that many years ago, when I was a young man, instead of the old man I am today, I got very, very excited because the shamrock shakes at McDonald's were coming out the next day. And I didn't sleep one minute through the night. That's how excited I was about the shamrock shake that was coming out the next day. St. Patrick's Day is March 17th. This was about March 1st, March 2nd at the latest. And the shamrock shakes were coming out. Oh, I was excited. I don't get that excited about anything, but I was excited about that. And the reality of it is they don't even sell them anymore because the green dye that they were putting in their vanilla shakes turned out to be carcinogenic. But the bottom line is I didn't sleep the entire night. So the question that I had in my mind when I came in here without voicing it, without asking it, without even knowing that I was afraid was, what is my life going to look like if I stop this behavior? Because it's the unknown. It becomes 
that road less traveled. So there was more going on than just the consumption of food. There was my activities and there was my social life and there was this and there was, how am I gonna watch a football game without at least two pizzas and at least a pound, pound and a half of Doritos and a minimum, a minimum of 24 to 36 donuts. How am I gonna watch a football game? How am I going to enjoy my life when I can't drive down the street and consume all the food that I was consuming in the car and throwing the wrappers, the boxes, and the chicken buckets from Kentucky Fried Chicken out the window? I was like Hansel and Gretel in the story. Hansel and Gretel dropped breadcrumbs in the forest so they could find their way in. And without intentionally doing it, I was Hansel and Gretel. Follow the chicken bones, follow the pistachio nut shells, follow the cigarette butts, follow the wrappers from the Hostess Susie Q's and the Hostess Cupcakes and the Twinkies and you'll find me. I cared nothing for anything or anybody. I threw crap out the window. And the reason that I threw it out the window was I didn't want anybody to know I had been eating in the car. I was 500, 600 pounds, whatever I was, 700. But I didn't want anybody to know that I overeat and I eat pizza and I eat all this other stuff. How many of you have ordered two pizzas from the same pizza parlor and asked the guy and gave him money to put both pizzas in the same box. I've done that. I didn't want anybody seeing me carrying two pizzas. So they would put two pizzas in the same box. And that meant that the top pizza donated a lot of its cheese to the bottom of the top of the box. But I didn't care because I didn't want anybody to know that I ordered two pizzas. I didn't want to know that I ordered two pizzas. And I've done that on hundreds of occasions, hundreds of occasions. There are places in Chicago that I could order a pizza that just by the sound of my voice, they knew exactly who it was and they knew what to put on the pizza. And they'd say to me, do you want both pizzas in the same box? And I'd say, yes. That's sick. That's abhorrent, sick, diseased, behavior, and I should be ashamed of myself. But in the middle of it, as it was going down, I felt pride that I was so well known that they were going to put the pizzas in the same box and that Louie knew, not Roz's dog, Louie, but the other guy, Louie, Louie knew how I like my pizza and to put two pizzas in the same box. I've had pizza delivery men come to my door and say, this has to be a mistake. A pizza just doesn't cost this much money. And I'd hand them the money and say, don't worry about it. It's okay. It, don't worry about it. It's all right. And they would leave completely perplexed. Why does this guy have to pay twice as much for his pizza? The reason that I had to pay twice as much for my pizza is there was two pizzas in there, not one, two but I wasn't going to tell him that for some reason, I didn't want to tell him that maybe some psychiatrist or therapist can explain why I didn't want to tell him that, but I didn't want to tell him that I didn't want to admit it. I didn't want to own it. I just wanted him out of my life and give me the damn pizzas and let me get started eating them because for crying out loud, the game is on man. And you're jabbering about the price. Stop jibber jabbering in my face and get out of my face and let me just eat and watch the game. And by the way, did you remember my two liter of Diet Pepsi? Okay, thanks. Two pizzas and a Diet Pepsi two liter. What sense does that make? The disease does not make sense. 
The disease is not based in cerebral common sense. The disease is not based in intellect. It's, it's based in emotion and ego and insanity. <sighs> Did the jaywalker have cerebral common sense? Did Bill Wilson have common sense? Bill Wilson had a lot of common sense, but did he exercise that common sense during the first eight pages of his story? Nope. nope. Can I relate to the way Bill thinks? You bet. Can I relate to the way Bill drinks? You bet. You bet. In every page, in the first eight pages of Bill's story, he is illustrating that the disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. In every paragraph, on every page, he's drinking more and more and more and paying more and more of a price. His life is going down, spiraling down quickly. Louis knew how I like my pizzas, pizzas. He knew to put two of them in the same box. He knew that made me feel so good. Boy, that's exciting, isn't it? Hardly, hardly. But at the time it made sense. So the chapter of vision for you was written specifically to show me the life that was out there. Because if somebody could have said to me in 1980, 19th, whatever, that one day 115, 120 people would be on my big book study on a Saturday morning, I would have laughed in their face. What would I have to say to a bunch of people who are trying to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And the chapter of vision for you, which is where my morning meetings, your morning meetings, hopefully gets its name and our Zoom meetings that emanate out of Scottsdale, we get our name from this chapter. It's one of the most popular names for a group. This and a new, the new freedom. I, I owe my life a lot to the New Freedom Group, AA group in Eugene, Oregon, the New Freedom Group from Colberg Road. They took me in. They knew my secret. They knew I was not an alcoholic. And they allowed me and, and encouraged me to come to their meetings and be with them. There was a guy there by the name of Les Downs. I think he's gone now. And he used to do a lot of real intense big book workshops. And I learned a lot from Les Downs. And there was a guy there by the name of David. And there were others there that knew my secret and they never ever discouraged me from coming. They encouraged me to come because they knew that I had nowhere else to go. And my life today looks so much better than Louie putting two pizzas in one box. My life looks so much better than getting a birthday card from a waitress at a restaurant in Chicago that literally is the face of the disease. It's the face of the sickness that I suffered from. I'm so much happier today than I ever was then. I'm so much healthier today than I ever was then. I'm so much better off today than I ever was then. Remember I told you that these concentration camp people would say to me, live until you die. And for a long time in my life, I felt like live until you die meant that you amass Butterfinger bars and pizzas and chicken and ribs, and you get all this stuff and you eat it because that's living, right? No, no, it's not. But I never could have resisted the impulse to do that on my own. Never could I have resisted that impulse to do that with my own willpower. Next week, come back, bring a friend. We're going to start the chapter 
a vision for you. And this is one of the most history-laden chapters and one of the most beautiful chapters ever written. It is just poetry, pure poetry. And we're going to talk about Bill Dotson, and we're going to talk about the Four Horsemen, and we're going to talk about a lot of things next week that I think are going to be very beneficial to anyone that's here. So please try to mark your calendar for next week and be here. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sue or Nancy or I don't know who else. I don't think Maria's 